Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin, brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author and Quail Ridge Books favorite Lee Smith. Her new book is Blue Marlin, which is published by our friends at Blair. Lee, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Jason. I'm just delighted to be here. Thank you. You are welcome, and it is an honor to have you here. And, Lee, the first thing I have to ask you is how are you doing? How are you handling both uh, life and the publicity surrounding this novella during um, this time of COVID-19? Well, um, I think everything for all of us is... You know, something strange and different during this time of, of COVID-19. And, of course, to have a book come out in the middle of it is particularly strange and different insofar as, you know, a lifetime of publishing books is concerned. But, honestly, um, I think people are really reading now. I know I'm really reading now. And I think people are really reading. They're really writing. They're really reaching out and so I have done a lot of um, a lot of online stuff a whole lot of zooming (laughs) with you know with various bookstores various groups all kinds of things and uh, I'm actually talking to you from Maine where we come every summer and say in the same little village which is named Castine and um, we started a, uh, a village reads program up here. And so the whole village, you know, just read this book, which has been great. And we had a, you know, uh, a Zoom program about it. And now we're getting ready to read another book by a young African man in um Blue Hill, a, a neighboring town. And so I think there there is a book energy going on uh, that I'm really seeing, you know, in, in spite of uh, so many troubles caused by all this. Right. Thank you so much, Lee. And I am jealous that you're in Maine. Um, I used to drive up to Limestone, which is right on the border of Canada. And um, what a beautiful place that is. Um, oh, I'll have to look that up. That's a place I don't even, you know, I don't even know. Yeah, it's but just... Yeah, it is, it's nice to be in a, a, a very small place, actually. Not that anything is manageable these days, but but it has been, uh, you know, a, a kind of a relief. And as I say, I've, we've got a lot of reading and writing going on in this house, for sure. Absolutely. And Lee, how did... Um this wonderful novella, Blue Marlin, find its way to Blair? Well, it was uh, originally, there was a version of it, as I say, this whole thing is based on a true story. I mean, it's based on a real trip that I took with my parents mm. when I was uh, 12 years old in 1958, 13 in 1958. And so I had written an earlier story, and but it was really, it was just always sort of more of a novella. It was a very long story, and it needed to be even longer to be kind of complete. So I did that and um, asked Blair. I noticed that I love the novella length just love it and I noticed that they had published a couple of other novellas and I just asked them you know if if they would be interested and they are and this is something they they'd like to do a sort of a, 
a little um, series of novellas. And I think actually for the pandemic, um, this is a very good length because I think um, several people have told me, you know, they, they want to read, but our concentration is not quite as good as it has been. And so I think the novella length is a, is a perfect length. I agree. Thank you so much. And Lee, we learn early in this story, uh, Blue Marlin, that the protagonist, Jenny, bonds with her mother over celebrity gossip magazines. Uh, Can you describe to me the inclination that some folks have both then and now to live live real life situations by comparing them uh, to things that celebrities have lived through? Well, this is a, you know, this is a fascination that we have always had. It's not just Americans. You know, it's a worldwide fascination with film stars, mm-hmm. right? Or singers or celebrity. Mm-hmm. And um, I think in back in the 50s, perhaps it was even more so uh, that uh, 1958 is when this book is set. And it's really based on the kind of fascination my mother and I had. I mean, we couldn't wait for any of these movie magazines to come out. We got them all. We bought them at the drugstore. We read them cover to cover. I mean, we could tell you as much about the lives of the stars as, you know, as my cousin Miranda up the street. Mm-hmm. And so we were fascinated. And we were fascinated with the movies. Although the movies in our town, just the movie, the movie, just changed once a week. And we were right there. You know, we were center, we were eighth aisle center row, you know, right, you know, right there uh, every time the movie changed. And so it was a big fascination that both of us had. In fact, I almost named this little uh, novella Lives of the Stars, which I think (laughs) think might have worked just as well. But the movies and and also the movie stars, they particularly meant something to us in these tiny towns, remote towns. You know, I was in a, a small mountain town. And, you know... I don't know, just they, they particularly, um, they just meant something to us. Right, and then a little later we learn that Jenny wants to become a writer. She says, mm-hmm. quote, I would make millions of dollars and give it all away to starving children in foreign lands. I would win the Nobel Prize then I would become a vegetarian poet in Greenwich Village. I would live for art. End quote. And <laughs> Lee, that is art with a capital A. Uh, can you talk about this passage spe- and specifically the idea that one can and will live for capital A art? Well, I think that's something that uh, only a fairly naive person (laughs) would, you know, would believe, but especially a child. I mean, she's, you know, at this point, she's a child. She's a very unusual child. She's been spoiled. She's, you know, been indulged. Um, She's an only child. And much like myself, and she started right, she started being particularly uh, crazy about reading and writing when when she was young. And so this is this is her fantasy, and as it was mine. She the the character of Jenny is, of course, I think when you when you write fiction, you kind of up the ante. So she's an exaggeration of me. But I was the little girl that, you know, I was the girl that, that rode my bike all over town um, spying on my neighbors and writing down my findings in a spiral notebook. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when, you know, when she says, I would use this stuff later in my novels, she's not kidding. <laughs> right. And um, Blue Marlin, of course, opens with the revelation that Jenny suspects her father, knows her father, is having an affair with Carol Bird. Uh, Jenny is, I believe, 13 or 14 years old at the time of this discovery. Can you talk about how this discovery, uh, this revelation of the fact of her father's affair, changed her life and even her day-to-day experience? Well, she says right there, you know, on that, in that, right in that first section, she says everything changed, everything in my whole world, basically, and her whole world becomes much more dramatic. She says now she's not any old thirteen-year-old girl, twelve-year-old girl riding her bike around town. Now she's a twelve-year-old girl whose father is having an affair. Something heretofore. Unthought of, mm-hmm. you know, and so uh, suddenly her life is infused with perhaps the type of drama that she and his mo- her mother are always looking for from the movies. I mean, suddenly, it, suddenly the ante's been up, you know, all over the place, and so uh, that's her reaction to it. But. What it's hiding, what that reaction is hiding is a kind of panic, I'm sure. Because what if you really, you know, what if you felt that? I mean, she she has that reaction because she and her mother are fixated on movies and these kinds of things. But, um, and it sounds like a plot of a movie. But, you know, that's a pretty panicky situation for uh, an only child, a girl, to be in. That's a scary situation. It is. Thank you so much, Lee. And listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Lee Smith. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin', B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Lee Smith, author of Blue Marlin, which is published by our friends at Blair. Lee, we talked about Jenny's father's affair with Carol Bird. Carol's father is Old Man Bird, and Jenny's father was Old Man Bird's lawyer. When Old Man Bird died, the town was shocked to learn that he wanted to be cremated. Jenny's mother says, cremated? Isn't that sort of communist? Don't they do it in Russia and places like that? Uh, When Jenny's dad replies that it is very commonplace, Jenny's mother replies, well, it certainly isn't Southern. Um, Can you talk to us about this passage and about the perception of things that certainly aren't Southern? Yes, I think Jenny's mother is uh, one of the most Southern characters I ever made up. She's pretty much a fictional, really totally fictional. She's not a bit like my own mother was, but... Um, yeah, the notion of cremation. My mother, 
Well, my mother did say one time she thought that might be communist. <laughs> but, you know, just something that's not done here. Whatever's not done here. We, we you know, we had, uh, we had an extra... I think smallness of vision, perhaps, because our little town where I was growing up was ranked by the mountains. You know, we were in the Appalachian Mountains. But I think in the South, there was a kind of a provincialism in the 50s, certainly a kind of small townishness everywhere. Well, this is the way we do things. And, and, and people were sort of proper, you know. And there, I mean, my mother and her friends, uh, you know, they dressed up to go to the Rexall to go sit downtown at the Rexall and have Coca-Colas. They put on their dresses, you know, dresses to do that and so on. And so it was a, it was very much a different time. And I think one thing I loved about writing this book is just to write about the 50s. Hmm. You know, this is the time of, of bomb shelters and the time of, uh, you know, a lot of religion and a whole lot of, uh, you know, structure of the family and in the town and and so on and so it was uh you know this is like a little i think it's it's a it's a journey book and that the family's going to take a big journey together but it's also a journey back to uh a safer more predictable and sometimes funny time you know the things of the 50s the clothes of the 50s and you know the music and all of that kind of stuff so i loved i loved doing it Thank you, Lee. Um, you alluded to this a little bit earlier. Jenny moonlights as a spy. Uh, this is how she first <laughs> learns of and sort of falls in love with Carol Bird. Can you tell us about Jenny the spy and how she fell into this habit? Well, I think partially the fact is that Jenny was an only child, which I was too. And she was an, uh, she, is, she is a very... Uh, similar character to the child that I was, although I have to say she's much bolder than I was, and she can do a lot more trouble than I did. But I had those characteristics, and I was um, crazy about books, I was crazy about reading, and I loved um, I loved all the detective books. I mean, starting with Nancy Drew, and I've, I've said before, um, I think one of the things I used to do when I first started as a child writing anything, I would write more onto the ends of books that mm. I loved because I couldn't stand for them to be over. Mm. And so I wrote myself right into the Nancy Drew book so that, you know, Nancy and Nancy's best friends were not only George Fain and Bess Marvin, but also Lee Smith, who was participating in all the in all the uh, mysteries. And, and I got Ned Nickerson in the end, furthermore. But <laughs> I was really into that whole, that whole thing. And maybe it's because... I don't know. There's something so satisfying about the mystery books because they're solved at the end, you know, whereas life itself is a kind of an open-ended mystery. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lee. And I want to stick with... Um Carol Bird for a moment because she's sort of a hermit in a small town and an artist in a small town and there's a trajectory where she is first the new person in town who is sort of a fascination to others and then she becomes the strange shut-in who is the object of gossip and ridicule and then she becomes romanticized for being a famous reclusive artist. Um, Can you talk about these types of trajectories of scrutiny that people understand undergo not just in small towns but everywhere and maybe what that says about us as human beings that we put people through this oh i think that's a really interesting um 
perception and the way the way people's perceptions of her change as you as you talk about yes i think particularly in the 50s in a small southern town um it was very unusual to have someone appear in town among the quote nice people who was so very different because there was a way as i said as the you know, the, the ladies dressed up and went to the Rexall, and there was a way of everybody went to church and everybody did certain things. And so when this, this when um, old man Bird died and his daughter appeared and began living in his house, she was so radically different from any other woman that was in town. I mean, she was an artist. She wore pants, loose-fitting pants, and, you know, she was very much the artist's protagonist, and she was immediately doing things like planting vegetables in the front yard, tearing down picket fences, putting big sculpture, you know, using big big pieces of metal and stuff for her sculptures, and, and she just let her hair be long, you know, everybody had short-cut bouffants and so on, and but she let her hair, which was graying, you know, just fall down her back and she was radically different and therefore I think kind of threatening because anybody different's a little threatening in um, such a town and such a time and fascinating to our main character Jenny who was always um, spying on her and she was very fascinating and she represented a completely different kind of grown woman from any kind that Jenny had as a model there in that in that little town, and she was, uh, you know, she was she was therefore vilified, and people tried to take casseroles to her. I had so much fun writing about the casseroles <laughs> that people brought after her father died, and she just said thank you and closed the door instead of oh won't you come in and blah 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 because she didn't want him to see what she was doing to the house. So anyway, that's the kind of a stranger, you know that's. That's one of the oldest plots in fiction, A Stranger Comes to Town. And the other one is Somebody Takes a Trip. And so actually I use both of those, I think, in, in this in this novella. Right. Thank you, Lee. And next, I'm hoping you can talk about Jenny's grandmother, um, who has interesting television viewing habits and is described as, and I am paraphrasing, always in wait of a funeral. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this character? Well, Jenny's, uh, Jenny's grandmother is very much, uh, very much the sort of model of the kind of person who likes to think she, she runs the town and she, you know, she knows how people should behave at a funeral and how this person should do and how that person should do and so on. And so she is, uh, you know, she is very, uh, needless to say, very, very upset when, um, when news of the news of this affair that her you know is comes out, but that her that her son is having, I mean, this is the last thing in the world that should ever happen. So she's a representative of the of the rules, basically, the expectations for the quote, you know, uh, upper class. I suppose and she's very she's very uh, very upset with her son. Right. Thank you, Lee. And finally, 
We're going to jump ahead a little bit in this story. I don't want to spoil things for our readers, but this is something that must be discussed as it relates to this wonderful story. What is a geographical cure? <laughs> a geographical cure? Um, well, you know, part of this story, as I discussed toward the uh, at the end of it, is is uh, some of this was you know uh, based upon a real trip that I took with my parents, um, who had at one time um, when I was twelve, they were both in different hospitals for months, almost six six months each one. Daddy had had what was then called a nervous breakdown and mama too and he was in Connecticut she was in Virginia and I was staying with various relatives and then when it came time for our uh, our nervous little little family to get back together daddy psychiatrist who was a brilliant doctor um, thought it might be a good idea for us not to just try to go immediately back into our home situation, daddy running the dime store, mama teaching home mag, et cetera, et cetera, that would be better if we just kind of got to know each other again under new circumstances, which I think was brilliant in mm-hmm. now in retrospect. So um, he prescribed what he called a geographical cure for the whole family. And I think possibly particularly for the marriage, but which because they had become estranged, I don't know, just from being apart, probably. There was certainly no affair that I knew of. Yeah. But anyway, we did have a geographical cure. And so in 1958, my mama and daddy and I got in the big fishtail Buick and drove to Key West. And we stayed down there in the Blue Marlin Motel. It's a real motel. It's still open. And we stayed there for uh, two months under very strange circumstances, which also appear in this little novella because the whole rest of the motel was taken up by the cast and crew of a movie that they were making there. And because Mama and I were so wild about the movies, this immediately sort of uh, pepped us all up. And it was uh, it was the injection, I think, of a certain kind of romance, really, um, into some some small town life that that needed some. So, I mean, we were really lucky. This happened, and you know, everything went well. That's all I'm going to tell about because the rest of us in the in the little book. Um, okay. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lee, and thank you for writing this wonderful story. Um, Listeners, I've been speaking with Lee Smith, author of Blue Marlin, published by our friends at Blair. Lee, thank you so much for joining me. Well, I'm so delighted, and I'm just, I love to, I love to think that there are other readers out there in, in this hard time, and I hope that um, this little book will maybe bring a smile and some memories of your own childhood of of the 50s certainly a, a simpler and often funny and uh, sweet kind of time once
once again, I would like to thank Lee Smith for joining me. Copies of Blue Marlin can be ordered from Quail Ridge Books at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, S-B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one month of free audiobooks and support your favorite independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookin'.